you know, everybody's got their own kind of pathway into CIA, and it's not until you're walking through the hallways uh, with other uh, other agents, other officers, that you start to realize how diverse that that group really is. You are listening to the live drop with Mark Valley. My guest today is Andrew Bustamante. He's an ex-CIA case officer, former United States Air Force officer. I wanted to talk with him because he's the author of this book called Everyday Espionage, which I thought was really interesting. It's about practical espionage concepts that yield tangible advantages in daily life, like building social capital or using deliberate speech and dialogues. But Andrew and I both share this objective of wanting to take experiences, stories, concepts from the intelligence community in that world and bringing it into a larger community where people can see larger systems and principles at work, exchange information, predict behaviors, and just basically understand the world around us a little bit better. This was a great episode to get to know Andrew a little, we get to find out what drew him into the CIA, why he was ready for it when he got there, and ultimately why he left and pursued a successful career as an author, speaker, and corporate advisor. And uh, I had a great time talking with a very intelligent guy. So begin transmission now. Yes, my family all originates out of Mexico. Mm-hmm. And uh, just across the border, and you know, so for me, all the conversation about uh, about migration issues and everything—it's all very relevant. But at the same time, you know, I wouldn't be here if it weren't for the fact that back in the '60s and '70s, we had a much looser migration policy. So, uh, for what it's worth, I'm very glad that I was I was able to become an American citizen. Mm-hmm. Uh, it certainly led to a, a, a long life, uh, a long career in service to my nation. But yeah, but either way, born in Arizona. Um, and, you know, kind of jumped around as we made our, our way as a family up mm-hmm. to Pennsylvania. And uh, and I grew up in Pennsylvania for the majority of my adolescence, um, which had its own kind of ups and downs. If anybody's from the Northeast, uh, then you know that the Northeast is is oftentimes full of pretty angry people. Okay, let me, <laughs> let me just stop you for a second. You grew up in Arizona. I mean, you're, you're, I'm guessing that your mother or your father were, were from Mexico or maybe both. But um, you probably spoke Spanish in the house, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah, Spanish until I was uh, five years old was the primary language, and then uh, and then you it's moved, funny. And then you moved to yeah. Pennsylvania, <laughs> and then we moved to Pennsylvania, and and in in an interesting kind of you know minority experience. Sure. When we moved to Pennsylvania, you know it it in the eighties it was kind of uh, it was the new kind of in thing to do uh, to to culturate to acculturate to your local community. So we my mother who was a a you know fluent Spanish speaker fluent English speaker took Spanish out of the home intentionally. So my sisters and I all grew up speaking just English from the time that we get we landed in Pennsylvania. So from uh from you know 1988 89 on we were exclusively speaking English. We did everything we could to essentially appear like the average everyday uh, American household. So that was with the, you know, my mom was a nurse. My dad was, uh, worked for IBM. You know, my two sisters and I did all the standard American things. So, you know, the, the, the dream of trying to have that white picket fence and be that American family was very much, uh, very much on our radar, even though we were very clearly, we didn't look like the Joneses on the, on the street with us. So, so gosh, that is, I mean, so she basically was training you to be for a career in espionage. Is, is essentially <laughs> what was going. That was this acculturation program in Pennsylvania. That's exactly right. Yeah. If, if we so could, what was that like? Around, did you, did you, a, were you, were you, did you feel like you had to sort of edit any, any cultural, any cultural, I don't know, tendencies or anything like that? 
you know, it's funny as a kid. No, you don't feel that way at all. Instead, what you feel like is uh, you, you feel like you look like everybody else around you. It was sure. actually kind of a shock when I was 13 years old and I looked in the mirror and I saw myself growing facial hair and and nobody else of my age group was growing facial hair. Right. Like right. I, I started to notice that I felt like the average Caucasian male, but mm-hmm. I looked very much out of place. Um, and of course, you know, mix onto that all of the woes of any adolescent male and, you know, not getting dates to prom and not being the most popular kid in school. It all starts to pile on and uh, et cetera. But yeah, I had not considered the fact that right from the beginning, my mom was teaching me how to blend in even when I didn't blend in. Wow. That's fair. And then, of course, you know, DNA takes over and it's like, oh my God, what am I becoming here? Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. So when the chance came to uh, to go to school, you know, I wanted to get as far away from Pennsylvania as possible. I wanted to try and get back to uh, to the Southwest. And in my application process, I found my way to the Air Force Academy, and they're out of Colorado Springs, Colorado, and I thought that was far enough. Um, and they, it was a full ticket, a full ride. So how was I going to say no to that? And that's how I landed at the Air Force Academy, uh, and then uh, scraped and uh, scratched my way through there, which I know you're familiar with what it's like to go to a military academy. Yeah, why why Air Force? Why not Naval Academy or um, West Point or um, it, the Coast Guard Academy? I'm sorry, I can't. I just, I just tried to say that with a straight face, but I couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, no offense to no offense to any coasties coasty out there. Graduate. I have a coastie graduate in my family, so I'm very. I'm, <laughs> you know, we 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 cover the gamut. So I I make jokes that uh, that the other military services were they just had a better. Uh, better judgment than the Air Force Academy, because I never quite got past the first round of interviews with the Naval Academy, and West Point wouldn't even return my my email or my uh, my mail application. It must time. have been all the facial hair. That was probably it. <laughs> but the Air Force Academy said yes, so you know, thank goodness for affirmative action. Oh, that's great. So when you were in, you were at Air Force Academy, what was your what was your specialty? What, what did you what did you, clubs, organizations? Does you're kind of finding yourself in that environment? What, what were you interested in? Yes. Interestingly enough, I was interested in everything that had nothing to do with the military. I actually, I found wow. myself, uh, I found myself um, studying Chinese and and doing very well in Chinese. And I found myself kind of getting, uh, you know, kind of falling in love with Asian culture, Asian history, uh, um, how the Asian mind kind of works. And then, um, you know, I was an I was an athlete. On top of that, the Air Force Academy has a, a very well established fencing program. Mm-hmm. Um, not many, not many universities in the U.S. have a fencing program, but the Air Force Academy did, um, and you know I got involved with that sport as well, which took me all over the country, and uh, and I had some fantastic experiences through that. But yeah, the military academy kind of taught me that I, I really didn't belong in the military, which is not the best place to learn that lesson. Yeah, right. Oh, so you knew it. You knew at that point. You thought, okay, this is really this inspection shiny shoes thing isn't really going to work for me. Yeah, I was I was finding my way to uh, finding my way to understand that you know on the margins is where I was the most comfortable. I mm-hmm. was never really comfortable kind of being in the mainstream, being in the main flow of things. I never really liked fitting in. I always wanted to be uh, you know we had a, we always termed them stealth cadets, those cadets that somehow managed to skate by without anybody noticing them. And that's uh, you know I guess similar to how similar to the training that my mom gave me and. Pennsylvania, I was I was suddenly applying it right here, um, you know, in a very small fishbowl type of environment, trying yeah, to find I, my way to hide, hide in the corners. I remember that at West Point, too. I mean, there was the, you know, the gray walls. I mean, if you could sort of just fade into that gray, that was yeah. sort of the ideal thing to do. You wouldn't attract anybody's attention. Yep. I mean, you could get good grades, but as soon as you, as soon as, um, you know, and, and anything colorful, it was tough during the 80s, too. <laughs> Even anything kind of colorful outside of that, that color palette of gray 
uh, gold and black, you sort of drew attention to yourself. So you kind of figured that out. I, I'm inter- I, had, I had a roommate who studied Chinese at the time. He made fun of me because I was studying French because he said, oh, look, golf, how hard could it be? <laughs> but he would like talk in his sleep. He would speak Chinese in his sleep. And uh, I still remember that, like in the middle of the night, him going like, or whatever. <laughs> well <laughs> T- done, Telling yeah, everybody it's... how amazing he is in Chinese at night. You know? <laughs> no, it's funny. The, uh, one of the things that, that, we, that I learned later on is that when you start dreaming in the languages that you're studying, that's how you know that it's reaching you on a lower cognitive level when it's becoming, when it's, your fluency is starting to, to develop. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm certain that I, I had some interesting conversations with, uh, with myself in my sleep as well. Um, and, and similarly, I think when I, I had the opportunity to study China, I'm sorry, study Chinese while I was uh, studying in China during my academy experience in my junior year. Uh, and man, those nine weeks abroad, I remember feeling so out of touch with English when I started, when I was on my flight back to, back to Colorado after that nine weeks, uh, study abroad was over. And that was a very uncomfortable feeling, feeling like I was more comfortable in Chinese than I was in English and then trying to rediscover you know, college level vocabulary as I was coming back, uh, on the plane. It was, uh, it was kind of a mind trip. Wow. You must have a real aptitude for languages. I mean, Chinese is really difficult, but to learn it as you're a junior in college with all that stuff going on. And then the, the Academy has a fantastic program for language. Um, I'm sure, I'm sure West Point did too. You know, you don't really get, you don't really get off easy academically in those universities. No, they, they keep your, they keep your feet to the fire. I did an exchange with a French unit when I was in Berlin. So I spent like a month with this French unit. <laughs> they really enjoy their lunch breaks. That's what, <laughs> that's what I could tell you. It was, but, um, yeah, I remember I was like journaling in French at the time, you know, and it was, it was a real, immer- it was a sh- short time, but it was a real immersion, you know, but China, what drew you to, what drew you to Asian culture and Chinese? Well, it's funny that you mentioned yeah, it's funny that you mentioned aptitude because the Air Force Academy actually gives us an aptitude test. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't even my choice. Um, I took an aptitude test in strategic languages because I didn't have enough Spanish to qualify me for the Spanish track, right? Go figure. Right. Uh, I'm walking in from a Latin background. I don't have enough Spanish to uh, to be part of the Spanish group. Mm-hmm. Um, so I took an aptitude test in strategic languages, Russian, Japanese, Korean, Chinese, uh, and my Chinese aptitude scored the highest. And that's actually what landed me in Chinese classes and it I mean it just it must speak to the to the the quality of the aptitude test itself because I really did take the Chinese well uh, and after I started loving the language you know there's so much you can learn about a culture from the language itself whether they put the the verb tense in the beginning or the verb tense in the end whether they put the subject at the beginning or the subject at the end oh, I know, always find this stuff fascinating telling. The, yeah, the, sort right? of, the sort of linguistic determinism Right, I think they call it something like that. Like, are there some things about the the, the Chinese, you know, the Chinese psyche or their culture that that is that is from their language? Like, so I know I I kind of came to learn that uh, you know there was always subject, time, verb, object. STVO was always how your Chinese sentences are mm-hmm. are organized. Subject um, first. Wow. Yeah, yeah, the subject first, and I think that speaks to their their emphasis as a culture on individuals right not uh, they're a collective organization they're a collective uh culture but when they are addressing an individual there's so much emphasis put on making sure that individual feels valued making sure that individual feels you know welcomed the whole concept of saving face Mm -hmm. Uh, and when you put the subject first that's exactly how it feels and compare that against english where we put the subject at the end right 
Um, right. And when, when that happens, you never really know what you never know who someone's talking about or you never know who someone's talking to until you wait until the end of the sentence. And that's oftentimes why Americans interrupt each other, because we think we know where the sentence is going. So we interrupt halfway through. Whereas in Chinese, if you interrupt somebody halfway through, all you know is what is who they're talking about. You have no concept of what they're about to say. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, that's why I'm, I mean, interrupting people is is an is an kind of an English thing. It's an American thing. Yeah, I mean, I wish we could take take pride in something other than that. But you're right; we finish each other's sentences all the time. Yeah, uh, because we think we know where the other person's going. In Germany, you have to sort of wait. I mean, it's like wir können um wie viel Uhr vor dem Kino bei dem großen Bauer, you know. I mean, you you don't find out you find out everything else except the verb, what you're doing until the very end. So you sort of have to wait with Germans as well. It's like, oh, you get all this information. It's like, wait, what? What's happening? You don't find out. You know. But yeah, it was, and there there wasn't a great deal of uh, there weren't a great deal of Chinese speakers at the academy at the time. I was part of a very small group. You only had to take two years to graduate. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was one of a small group that took all four years. So when I graduated from the Air Force Academy, I had my minor in Chinese and I had a major in East Asian studies. And, uh, and you know, the, the Air Force kind of took it from there. At the time, all they were looking for was pilots. And I had decent vision, decent grades, and, and I was in good physical condition. So I went off to learn how to fly. Um, and then, How'd that go? you know, after... Uh, it, it was an interesting experience. I, I, I never enjoyed flying. I have the utmost respect for pilots because flying is not fun. All, you have a bunch of rules that you have to follow. You're in the most uncomfortable little seat you could imagine. You're, you have to answer for everything you do that's, that's a variation from your flight plan. You know? And at the end of the day, you, just, you smell like you know, sweat and, uh, and jet fuel. Assuming yeah. that you didn't also have to wet your pants because you were on a long mission. So, oh, man. And I think that, are... they always play, da -na 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 -na. I mean, is that song always in, <laughs> is going inside every cockpit? I just imagine they have that playing everywhere. For real, right? And, and it sounds super exciting, but yeah. When you watch Top Gun, you know, the, the fighter scenes only take up, you know, six minutes of time. And that's because it takes 30 minutes to take off, 30 minutes to land, and all the in-briefing and out-briefing. They can't, they can't put that on video. I mean, the only thing piloting I've done is probably like faking it on, on television. But <laughs> one time somebody said, oh, do you want to f learn how to fly this plane to um, um, Catalina Island off the coast of California? So it's kind of a short flight. A lot of people do it. But I was up there flying this plane and kind of keeping everything, all the little levels level. I mean, it wasn't a fighter jet or anything like you. But it just hit me. It's like, wait a minute. There's no place for me just to pull over. There's no, there's no, I can't just <laughs> stop at the Seven Eleven, you know, and get some water or something. You're, you're right. Yeah. You're up there and you're, you're going along for the ride. So you're committed. Exactly. You're definitely really committed to that. Mm -hmm. So, um, I think after that, you, I mean, some of you, one of your first assignments did a little bit of research into your background. You worked for, um, you don't have to talk about it if you don't want, but you worked with, um, at an air force base in Montana with some nuclear missile yeah, operations. Correct. And, um, yeah, the, the again, again, very wisely, the Air Force, uh, the Air Force put me on a nuclear missile assignment sure. <laughs> right after, right after pilot training. Yeah, he's fluent um, in Chinese. Let's put him on a missile. <laughs> put him with the missiles. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so I went on and I, I, uh, I got certified in um, in ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles, and uh, ICBMs. Uh, 
another area that I never thought I would end up. But uh, but along with that responsibility comes the highest level clearance you can get in the military. Right. Um, and a TSSCI CAT-6 and CAT-12, which are the two categories that cover nuclear missile operations and intelligence operations. So, you know, here I am, you know, a, a, a inexperienced, relatively, you know, stupid, egotistical 24-year-old male like we all are at some point in our life. And I land on my feet uh, in California to learn about missiles and then ultimately in Montana where I'm actually uh, in charge of 10 intercontinental ballistic missiles. Uh, just me and one other guy with keys around our necks, you know. Did you name them? Yeah, we did We <laughs> we did not name our missiles. We did yeah. name our keys. Oh, you named you the know? keys, really? Yeah, Gus and Spin. So we thought they were pretty clever names at the time. Gus and Spin. So you had to have both keys, right? One one person had one key, one person had the other. So both of you guys had to show up at the same time at the same place. Yeah, if you if you were going to launch, there's a, a quite a bit of rigmarole that goes into actually launching. But yeah, it it comes down to two people at the same time in the same place turning their keys at the same time to execute the final command. Well, I mean, I don't want to get into you know procedures or anything, but did you those days you had cell phones, right? Yeah, I mean they were they were new. They were new technology, mm -hmm. but yeah, they were out there. We did not have smartphones. I mean, could you text your 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 nuclear partner? <laughs> Just feel like you know what's going on. Where are you? Did you? You actually you couldn't take your phone into the into the capsule at the time. Okay, and the at the capsule yeah, that's the place behind. that's underground, right? That's an, an... correct. Yeah, yeah. People call them silos, but the silos are actually where the where the missiles rest, and the mm -hmm. capsule is where the missileers rest. Oh, the missileers in the capsule. And how far how far down? A uh, hundred feet. It was a hundred feet underground. Wow. Did you, you, a, did you take the stairs just for exercise? <laughs> we there there were uh, there was a ladder and an elevator, and those were the two ways that you had up and down. So that's your first. Aside, it's your first duty. The escape, yeah, aside from the escape hatch. This is your first duty assignment. One of your first. Yeah, this is my first active duty assignment. Correct. Everything before that was always just training. Okay, so you didn't want to be a pilot. You didn't want to be a nuclear missile missileer. Right. Yeah, it goes back to I, I didn't want to be in the military, man. I didn't want to shave. I didn't want to wear a uniform. I didn't want to shine my shoes. I I had a long list of things I didn't want to do. I had no idea what the hell I did want to do. Right. So when you, people ask you those questions and they say, do you work alone or do you work with a team? How do, how do you usually answer it if you had to do a multiple choice thing? So I would say that um, I prefer to work on a team, but I prefer to lead that team. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So... Um, I, I want to talk about your transit. You did you did uh, less than your five years. You got I think around that time they were giving incentives for people who wanted to get out early. Yeah, Is absolutely. That what was yep, going exactly. On? Yeah, they yep. happened to us as well. So um, how did how did things um, how did things come about with the CIA? Were they kind of looking at you? Were you looking at them? Did you have a prof what was your what was your um, what was, yeah, did you so have a connection or an example or a mentor or did you just no? I had none of those things. Yeah, so. Uh, you know, after after putting in my paperwork on the first day of the early out program, like you just talked about, the incentive program where they were offering uh, offering folks the opportunity to get out early with honorable right. discharges. You know, I, I was waiting at the door the day that they allowed us to put that that uh, application in. So I put in my application for that early out, and I uh, immediately kind of went out excited to to change my life, right? To no longer be this uh, pawn of the man, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I did what, you know, all people did. And I thought about, you know, where am I going to find a date? <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> and not, I was like, definitely well, not as a missileer. That wasn't going to happen. <laughs> yeah. They don't, they don't really hide out in droves, you know, in Montana. 
And I was like, oh, well, I want to see the world. And I, and I, you know, I'm an aspiring hippie at heart. So what makes sense? And I was like, oh, the Peace Corps, the Peace Corps makes perfect sense. I can go, you know, somebody else is going to pay my ticket. I'm going to end up in Africa, you know, surrounded by 35 big hearted women and, uh, and we'll all feed starving children together. And I'll learn to play the guitar. Right, and, right. And so I applied for you get that the picture. You get that picture of yourself with all the little African kids around you, <laughs> and you're in the middle with your, with your arms around all of them. Right, they're all smiling. Right. Yeah, yeah, everybody's you, happy, and they're all happy because of you. That's 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 the dream right there. That's it. You're but, Oprah. Uh, you're like Oprah for a day. Yeah. But then halfway through the Peace Corps application, this big red screen pops up, uh, and anybody who's applied to the Peace Corps knows the screen I'm talking about. A big red screen pops up, and it says Harry's, that Harry's uh, Harry's razors. No, <laughs> it says that uh, that uh, continuing your application past this point prohibits you from being a part of other government agencies uh, that you may qualify for, and it, it gives you the option: do you want to continue, or do you want to do you want to you know put your application on hold and and give the government essentially a chance to review your profile? And I was like, well, you know, I'm I'm the king of you know what's the next best thing. So I'll put my application on hold and see what happens. And about 24 hours later, I got a phone call uh, from a a phone number that just said 703. If you've ever had a phone call come in and they usually have the full phone, but this one just said 703. And I had no idea what that was. That was the the number that called you? Yeah, it was just just the number 703. Just the area code is all that came through on the caller ID. Obviously, it was agent 703 calling you. (laughs) Go ahead. (laughs) Explain it if you must. Yeah. Um, and I picked it up and that was, it was the agency. So all of the overt telephone lines at CIA only appear as 703, which is the, the area code for, uh, Langley, Virginia. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know that at the time, but you know, I picked up the phone and, and I got a phone call from somebody who sounded very friendly, but refused to admit their affiliation. And they basically said, Hey, we know that you're applying for federal jobs. We think we have something that you might be interested in. Uh, you know, would you be open to visiting us here in Langley? And if so, you know, we'll send you a, um, a questionnaire, an online questionnaire. And if you pass that first round of, of questions, then, you know, we'll send you a, a ticket to fly you up here for interviews. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know where my mind was at the time. I can imagine that I was probably just super excited. I basically felt like somebody was asking me to be James Bond. Sure. But yeah, but yeah I was like, absolutely. Send me whatever questionnaire you want. I'm leaving the Air Force. I don't have any other plans. And, you know, Washington, D.C. is probably full of probably full of potential, you know, dating options. Yeah. So yeah. hit me up. Oh, and, that's exciting. Uh, and that's how it went. Yeah. And then I went through a series of interviews yeah, what from we, there what we, and, what and we've found done, my way. What we've yeah. done to meet women. You know, I know. I mean, basically, I, all, we can go through all these details about your schedule, you know, where you went to college, where you went. Yeah, in the back <laughs> of your head, it's kind of like you know. So you were recruited by basically a pop up, and um, that kind of came up, and then um, move in. How did things? How did things go from there? Just yeah, well, for the hiring process for the agency is pretty well documented, but it is still considered classified. Sure. Oh. Ding, ding. I should have a, I should have a little bell that goes off whenever I ask <laughs> ask a question that can't be answered. It's like. Dang, dang. I know, like a little Air Force, little little missile. Was there like an alarm thing in the missile silos? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. I gotta get one of the next thing. They don't. They they just send you to a farm. You don't. There's no village, no city, no sub- suburbia. It's like you go straight to like a farm. 
We, but, we call it the farm, but I'm sure it, it does not resemble a farm in many ways. I, I don't recall seeing a sheep or a cow or a chicken the whole time I was there. <laughs> You're not really, yeah. But you guys are the vegetables at the farm, essentially, <laughs> right? You're you the things like, that yeah. are going into the ground that are growing out of it. Yeah, I'd like to jump. That's, that gives me a pretty good idea of how you got started into all this. I, I wanted to talk a little bit about how espionage shaped American culture and um, maybe some of the differences. We were talking about it a little while ago, about some of the language differences with the Chinese and how it kind of structures their, their thoughts and behaviors and the way they communicate. But um, maybe we can talk a little bit about how you think espionage shaped American culture. Broad question, but let's jump in. I, I find it fascinating to see the impact of espionage on the modern day. And it's, it's especially important and especially relevant to me now because there are so many headlines out about uh, active espionage cases, possible espionage cases. You look on Netflix or Amazon or any of the of the big TV networks, and everybody's got their show out about something covert, something espionage related. Uh, and I can't help but wonder how did we get here? How did we? How is it that right now, 2018, is this pinnacle time for us to talk about espionage? Yeah, good you point. Know, we had James Bond for a long time and never and, and as big as James Bond got, it always just stayed in the realm of James Bond. Right. It didn't like mm -hmm. it never became this question about uh, us as a people and our ability to keep secrets and what secrets should be kept and what secrets shouldn't be kept. And who do we trust and who don't we trust? And, and now everybody's got a stake in the game. Everybody has has an opinion. People are actually starting to ask questions about, you know, what level of of secrecy should we maintain and what level of secrecy is helpful or not helpful. Um, you look at something like 9-11, which in many ways I think is where the whole espionage, the whole um, covert intel operational world started to really come into question because an event like that happened. And how did that event happen? You know, right out of the gates, people started wondering if it was an intelligence failure. And then, you know, as the various research was done and as, um, as the studies were produced, we come to find out that that's exactly what it was. In many ways, it was a large-scale intelligence failure. Um, and when you don't do something well, that's, that is when scrutiny starts to fall on you. That's when the world starts to come in and look at you. So here we are 17 years after 9-11, um, and there's questions about espionage involvement in our uh, election cycle. And there's questions about uh, whether espionage is at play in... Uh, in NSA, CIA, in FBI, you know, who's who can you who's actually in charge, who's pulling the strings? Mm -hmm. um, and to me, that's all it all ties back to our American culture, uh, because American culture is a culture that that believes in privacy. Right. We believe in secrecy at at the core of our culture, but we don't believe that secrets should be kept from us. It's right. a it's a it's a totally divergent thought, right? How right. can we how can we be entitled to secrecy and privacy, but still be entitled to transparency and honesty? But that's our that is exactly our expectation. Yeah. And that's I think what I find so fascinating about where we are today. Yeah, people yeah, people want transparency, but they don't <laughs> they want they don't want anybody listening to their, you know, combing through their emails, listening to if they're talking to the terrorists or anything like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting point. Yeah. The Germans have this term called Gläserne Persona, which means like a glass person. And there's this idea that there's an idea that you should, should we just be a glass person where we all can just completely see each other and what we're doing. And, um, 
you know, I think we're getting, I think at that point you're kind of getting into the, the theory and the, the end game of, of um, like an extremely pervasive intelligence operation. Like, for example, I remember talking to somebody and they're saying that the reason Cold War didn't, you know, didn't really kind of ignite in Berlin was because there were so many agencies looking over each other. And they were capable of finding out so much about everybody knew what everybody was doing, at least on a tactical and strategic well, not maybe not strategic, but everybody knew where, you know, all these divisions and all these Soviet armies were and where they were going and where the Americans were as well. So it's because they could see everything that um it sort of kept the peace. And is that sort of a is that something that they teach in the CIA that the more you know, the less likely you are to um go into a hot war? Well that's sort of the that's sort of the uh, gentleman's aspect of the intelligence game, right? Right. You uh, you act like you know more than you know, and then at the same time you claim to know less than you know, uh, all in the hopes that that by not ever really disclosing what you actually know, it prevents the other person from overstepping their bounds. That's that is the deterrent. Um, whereas in you know in a in a tactical war or a kinetic war. You know, guns and bullets and missiles are what deter somebody from making a move. Mm-hmm. But in the intelligence world, it's it's the act of of recognizing what you don't know that is actually the deterrent in your decision making process. Now, could you run that by me again? What keeps so let's 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 make it personal, right? Sure. Um, let's say that we're in a negotiation over over a used car, right? Mm-hmm. I'm trying to buy a car from you, right? This is this is real world stuff. You know everything there is to know about that car. Right. And you know whether the price that you're trying to sell it at is a good price or a bad price. You know if that price is a deal. You know if that car is a lemon. But I don't know any of those things. Right. And and I don't know you. Mm-hmm. So so the deterrent, the thing that keeps me from buying the car, is the long list of things that I don't know. So if so if you want me to buy the car, if you want me to take a step, then you have to you know choose selectively which truths to tell and which lies to tell to get me to buy the car. Whereas for me, all I have in front of me is a is a big question mark. There's so much that I don't know. It it motivates me not to make a decision. It motivates me not to take action. You don't really know. Yeah. So you look at. So that's look great. At North... That's been a great interview. I'm going to wrap it up with <laughs> <laughs> right now <laughs> with the theory of espionage. But um. Yeah, I was just gonna. I was. But you look at North Korea, South Korea, right? These two. This continent, the Korean Peninsula, has been in conflict or has been in in peaceful treaty ceasefire for many years, for many decades now. Uh, and the question constantly kind of looms over uh, looms over anybody in the who's connected to like international politics is when is that going to change and, and how is it going to change? Mm-hmm. And the reason that it doesn't change isn't because you know one side has phenomenally more information than the other. It's because neither side has the adequate amount of information that they need to make a move, mm. right? Mm-hmm. South Korea cannot predict what North Korea will or will not do, and North Korea cannot predict what South Korea will or will not do, and nobody knows what the allies of each country will do. So in that absence of information, that is the deterrent from action. So nobody takes action because they don't have enough information to know for sure how it's going to turn out. That's the whole intelligence game. Oh, okay. I get it now. So, yeah, the, the more somebody doesn't, the less someone knows, the more you can keep a secret from someone, right? The more you can, in a way, predict that you can predict their moves and that they won't make a move 
Exactly. Yeah, and and that's what it's all about, right? It's all about being able to assess and predict behaviors, assess and predict individual behaviors, assess and predict you know group behaviors, uh, and that's why that's where my my kind of everyday espionage concept. That's where it really started to um, become take hold of my heart. Is that so much of what we experience in our life is exactly that? It's this idea of how do we predict the behaviors of others? How do others predict our behaviors? And what are the tools that we see every day to help drive us to make certain decisions or prevent us from making other decisions? I guess you have to look at yourself, right? I mean, my thought was that I, I think maybe 30 years ago, countries had all these secrets and had all this information. I mean, people didn't really have – there wasn't really as much information available on individuals as there was on, say, you know, what people were doing for this company or what people were doing for this – this country. But now that we have so much more information available on a personal level, I think people have to people have to manage that information and have to make these kinds of decisions with more information than they had before. So that's that's why I think um you're really onto something when you're saying, Hey listen, you know, everyday everyday espionage. What are what are those principles? One of the things that I always highlight early on when I try to introduce my concept to somebody is is the idea of social capital. Right. Um, just like we're all familiar with using coins and dollars to carry out our, our um, sales and commerce every day, uh, there's such a thing as social capital as well. Right. Where you're where you have you have gained a certain amount of of capital in your relationship with somebody. And then likewise, they have gained a certain amount of capital in their relationship with you, especially in unhealthy relationships. And what we all what we all consider manipulative, abusive relationships, that's when you see social capital play out to its highest level of transparency, right? You've got uh, the stereotypical abusive male and the stereotypical female victim in an abusive relationship. And, you know, the male uh, systematically leverages fear and, uh, and abusive language and, you know, uh, emotional uh, abuse against this female. And then, you know, from the outside looking in, it's very clear to see how the female is being manipulated and victimized by this abusive counterpart, right? Mm -hmm. And here's this is your stereotypical, you know, very easy to understand example. Now take that, take that, and you know, zoom out ten thousand feet and take a look at at all of the neighbors and all of the people in that same community. And to a certain extent, everybody is engaging in that social capital exchange, mm -hmm. only not necessarily to an abusive level. A husband wants to stay out late after work to go drink with the guys. So, you know, he does a few extra house chores, you know, the night before to to kind of, you know, get his wife on his side before he says, hey, babe, you know, I think I'm going to try and stay out and have an extra beer with the guys tomorrow after work because he wants her to say yes. So he tries to prime her by get by putting in some of that social capital mm -hmm. or uh, in going back to our car salesman idea. Right. You and I are uh, negotiating over a used car. Uh, I don't know anything about you, so how do you build social capital? Is you start you start demonstrating to me all the ways that we have things in common. Oh, I'm also a dad, or oh, you know, I also went to a military academy. I know your feelings. I know what it's like to be in your shoes, mm -hmm. because all of that is building capital to make me trust you, to make me like you. And if I like you, then that's going to mean I will probably trust what you have to say about the car. I will trust that the price is fair, and you know, we'll move forward. At its heart, all of the all of that activity is manipulative. All of those decisions are predicated on one person being in control of information and the other person having limited information fed to them. And that's that's what we see uh, around us all the time. Whether it's advertising through billboards and 
and internet sales programs and you know uh, commercials on television, you see somebody who has all the information slowly parsing it out to you in such a way to direct your behavior. Mm-hmm. That is an intelligence operation. That's fascinating. I mean, you think about it. I mean, everything. I mean, we could get into like you know the ethics of of espionage and so forth. I mean, but um, I mean, at its basic level of relation, like a human relationship, um, if you really grind it all the way down, it's um, it's really it's really I don't want to be completely alone, so I'm going to do some things for this other person, so that we can have some kind of connection. Right. I mean, so that they, I will take care of them, so that they take care of me. Yeah, there there is a basic there's a basic almost I mean we, you would call it like you know I mean it seems sociopathic but it's a it's a basic exchange that's that's going on. Um, so you have social social capital built you know kind of building trust with people. Um, but what's the next What's the next step? <laughs> so there's social capital and then and then there's this concept um, that that I call uh, uh, deliberate dialogue, right. right? And deliberate dialogue is when you speak for a purpose, right? You speak and the words that you choose and and the way that you deliver those words are all feeding towards a very specific outcome. Uh, You can compare that against all those people that we know who very clearly speak with no intent at all, with no idea what they're talking about or no idea where their conversation is going, right? We we all know these people, uh, Mm -hmm. people who just kind of talk at nauseum and, and you don't know why they're talking or what they're talking about. And they talk about five different points at one time. Well, instead, this, the idea of having a deliberate dialogue means that you know where the end goal is. So you start right. crafting the conversation, crafting the dialogue, even crafting the relationship very intentionally, very deliberately at first to drive that individual, to drive the conversation, to drive the decision-making process in a specific direction that benefits you. So when you have social capital, when you have the trust that, that somebody is giving you, or when you have enough social capital that you can uh, use it as a way to gain leverage to make somebody act a certain way, and you pair that up with this idea of deliberate dialogue, where everything that you're saying ha- is marching towards a very specific end goal. Now what you're doing is you're, you're engaging that person on an emotional level, because that's the social capital part. You, mm-hmm. me, same, same. Emotionally, I trust you. And then you're engaging them on a logical level, right? They hear the words that you're saying. They hear uh, uh, a consistent message. They see that you have confidence and that you have um, a, a plan, even though they don't know what the ultimate plan is. But that brings them a certain level of logical confidence. And now essentially what you've done is you've been able to meet the two foundational needs that all people have, emotional needs and logical needs. Mm-hmm. And, and when you can uh, master those two sides of a relationship – then essentially you start to open the door to gaining that person's loyalty. Oh, and so in an, like, I like this person and they make sense. Yes, I like this person and they make sense. And therefore, I want to be around this person. I want to uh, be like this person. I want to I want this person to like me. Right. And all of a sudden, um, you know, it's not it's not all of a sudden it's more gradual. But what ends up happening is that the individual that you're talking to, the individual that you're engaging with starts to become intrinsically aligned with you. That's that loyalty conversion that we're talking about. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's the same conversion that happens in international espionage. Right. You want to basically make someone make someone question the loyalty they have to their country. And instead project that loyalty onto a different institution. 
And essentially, that's that is that's how an Intel operation works, and that's what we do in everyday espionage. We are, if, if you have deliberate dialogue and if you're capitalizing on social capital, then you are essentially learning how to drive an individual, drive a relationship in a specific direction. It seems like one of the exercises at the farm should be, you guys should just work as telemarketers for like for like a month. And just try to get somebody to, <laughs> try to get somebody to change their long distance plan like, <laughs> in like fifteen seconds, you know, fifteen minutes. How would you do that? But it seems like you know that's kind of essentially what you're doing. You're getting people to question question the overall deal, you know. Yeah, and you know, why would you change your plan of Verizon? Oh, because I have two kids and I went to a military academy just like you. Come on. Yeah, come on, dude. So come over to Spectrum. What are you talking? Spectrum's a TV thing. Don't worry about it. I'll figure it out later. <laughs> but I had a question though. I mean, there's a certain. I mean, as any here's what here's what fascinates me a little bit. I mean, as you're working like an espionage case, or you're kind of you know you spotted you know an, an asset, you're kind of developing this relationship with someone. I mean, in the back of your head, you must know that things didn't work out that well for Benedict Arnold. Yeah, and it's yeah right. I'm, so Absolutely. I'm just so I'm just wondering what is the overall is is that a cost, you know, that you have to pay, and how and how do you how do you how do you deal with it? And this is um, for for those. For those professional um, spies who are listening right now, um, you know this this might be an uncomfortable truth, but this is ultimately the truth that that uh, took me out of the espionage game, right? Took me out right. of the the international espionage game. Um, we we are all students at the at the farm. Somebody is teaching us how to become master manipulators. Right. And then you graduate from there and you go on into the field and you make a career of becoming a master manipulator. Right. But at some point we start to forget that we were students once and somebody taught us how to do what we're doing. Right. And and the student will never surpass the master. Even if the student becomes a master, they will never actually surpass the master because every year that that student spends mastering their skill, the master who has been a master is also continuing to refine and master their own skills. So I found myself, you know, in 2014 married to another spy with our first child. And we looked at each other and we realized that we were willing to pay this ultimate cost that you just talked about. We were willing, willing to pay not only, uh, you know, the cost of potentially losing our, our lives, but the cost of, you know, permanent illness or long-term imprisonment or whatever else, all with, with plausible deniability, on behalf of our entire government, right? Because right? that's, that's part of the deal. You sign up that the president never has to acknowledge you ever. Um, and we're signing up for this, and for what reason? Well, we're signing up for it because, because we have given our loyalty to the institution. And all of a sudden, the light clicked for me, where I was like, wow, exactly the same process that I have been taught to use and manipulate others is the process that has led me down the road to the point where here I am and I am willing to give up my family, give up my child, give up the one chance I have in life to be a father at the behest of whoever the American people elect to be the president of the United States or whoever the president elects to be the head of CIA, right? And my loyalty has been institutionalized. Right. And yeah. and that was that was heavy for me. And that's that was a, a moment in reality where, you know, I made a hard left turn and decided that that, you know, I wonder what I was so thankful that that moment of realization happened, mm -hmm. uh, because when I took that same moment to my peer group, 
at the agency and I said, hey, guys, have you ever stopped to think that maybe we're not serving, you know, we're not keeping America safe. What we're actually doing is serving American policymakers priorities. So if they prioritize rice trade right now, then we're going to go out there and risk our life to get secrets about rice. And if they decide to prioritize, you know, oil, then we're going to go out there and risk our life to get secrets about oil. Um, but all I really want to do is keep my family safe and, you know, capture terrorists. Mm -hmm. And and it was, I mean, a lot of my conversation fell on deaf ears or resistant ears because my colleagues had all, you know, they had all drank the juice just like I had. And uh, and we were all very much like, oh, no, we are patriots and we are heroes and we're the silent sentinels of America. And, you know, it's a risk we're willing to take. Yeah, that's fascinating that, that you could actually come to a point where you realize, wait a second, the the master has been. I'm I'm the asset that's been yeah <laughs> that's exactly been being, that's exactly being it developed on a macro level while this is going yeah. on, and I'm an asset and we're all assets together and we are like a self-licking ice cream cone because who is it that cheers me on to keep doing it? You do the guy right next to me, right? That's, yeah. that's the other soldier in the trench. Um, well, neither one of us is waking great. up to the reality. <laughs> I think there's I think there's like a Starbucks at Langley, isn't there? We is, is that where this conversation happened? You're like. <laughs> Hey guys, you're like in line waiting for your latte. You ever think? <laughs> you know? Yeah, there is. A, I mean, it's the only place that I've ever seen where Starbucks and Dunkin' Donuts exist in peace. Oh, I always see Starbucks together with Burger King nowadays. I don't know what's going on with that. That's like some secret little partnership <laughs> they have going on. Is it your way right away, right? So yeah, I guess that's... <laughs> yeah. Dunkin' Donuts and Starbucks is a pretty good combination. That's a, that's a fascinating combination, though. Dunkin' Donuts. I mean, I'm going off on a tangent, but, but um, that was that was that was a pretty serious. I mean, I don't know if you want to share it, but was there any was there any sort of specific, or um, you know, movie you saw or something where you said that helped you realize come to that realization, or was this a gradual thing over time as your values were just kind of being evaluated? Yeah, it was it was a little bit of both, I guess. It it kind of happened like you, uh, um, kind of like you. I'm trying to think of a of a good analogy here, um. Maybe like you eat a pizza, mm -hmm. right? Like the first bite you take of pizza is always this gigantic bite because you're so hungry. Yeah. But then by the time you're, you know, stuffed and you know you need to stop, you're kind of taking little bites. So it all came with one big bite at the beginning. And it was the day that my son was born. Um, my son was born. My wife uh, had had a very, you know, uh, um, healthy, predictable pregnancy. And then the day my son was born, he just never progressed, right? He never actually um, – he didn't have a natural birthing process. He just kind of stayed put. And, you know, my wife started getting pumped full of these of progesterone and whatever else the doctor and the midwife decided needed to happen so that so that my wife would go into labor. And and she just never did. Her labor was all chemically induced. It wasn't natural. Right. Um, and then that put pressure on whether or not, you know, she was going to make it through the pregnancy as her as her heart rate increased, as her blood pressure increased. Um, you know, thankfully, throughout the entire ordeal, my son's my son's uh, vital signs were always very strong, but unfortunately, as we were going through it, my wife's vital signs started to change, mm -hmm. um, and I couldn't help but ask myself the question: like at the, you know, if I were to have gotten a phone call at that time, and I was getting lots of text messages from you know her parents and my parents, what's going on, what's the status, uh, and I could ignore all those, um, but you know there was this expectation that I was covering. Uh, I was covering countries in sub-Saharan Africa at the time. That was my my primary uh, duty, and we were expecting um, a potential coup to happen. 
Uh, and had had a coup occurred, had a call come in calling me back to the office, you know, I would have been in a position where, you know, I, I would have been hard pressed to say no. Culturally, I would have been hard pressed to say no. And professionally, I would have been hard pressed to say no. And I and I as I'm ignoring these calls and rejecting these calls from my family and the people who I care the most about because my wife is sitting here and she needs me. I realized that, you know, there was there was this call out there that I would have a hard time rejecting. That was the big bite that really made me question it all. And then as I held my son in my arms healthy afterwards and my wife recovered and everybody was fine and everything was was well and good, you know, then I start seeing that I'm working, you know, 13, 15 hour days, uh, you know, in a secret skiff somewhere geographically distant from my my recovering wife and my newborn baby. Um, and I'm wondering why I'm doing it all. And And those were the subsequent small bites that helped me realize, you know, oh, it's because I'm only... I only say I'm loyal to my family, you know, and that those are just words that come out of my mouth, but in my heart, right, in my mind, I'm loyal to the organization. And that's not where I wanted my priorities to be. Mm-hmm. And you can feel that. Oh, oh yeah, you can feel it. I mean, we all know what it feels like to be somewhere we don't want to be. Um, and, you know, we fight those feelings and we ignore those feelings and we try to rationalize those feelings, but we all know the, un- the discomfort that comes when you know that you're doing something wrong. Right. Um, but then it's not always easy to decide what the right thing to do might be. Yeah. Did it make sense to you at the time? It, it, it wasn't, kind of it wasn't crystal first? clear. Yeah. It was kind of a feeling first. And I think it really started to, to come to light when my wife went back to work. Cause like I said, my wife was also an agency officer, also mm-hmm. undercover. Um, and when she started going back to work and now both of us were working very long hours and, you know, taking long commutes to get into work and missing each other and missing our life as a family, we we realized like we didn't we didn't have a baby so that we could work all the time. We didn't have a baby so that we could be taking last minute TDY trips to third world countries and not be able to tell each other where we're going. That's not why we got into this game. Yeah. But that's exactly where we found ourselves. I imagine it's hard enough to plan to plan your day having a child without having to schedule in like a surveillance detection room or something. <laughs> like, oh God, I don't have time for that this morning. Hey, but but babies are us is the perfect intrusion point. No one's gonna follow me in there. So. Let's, let's get into Jerry let's get into Jerry Lee. So um I read a little bit about this guy. I mean really there was I think the from what I'm reading is the FBI and CIA, the sort of there was this mole. I mean, there was a problem, obviously, not more than a problem. It was a major intelligence, major breach of the um, intelligence community um, around 2010, I suppose, when up to, you know, Amer- American um, agents and assets were being discovered and executed and imprisoned in China. And um, they thought it was either they'd hacked into some type of external system to find out who these people were, or there was a mole on the inside. Did they kind of know that it was this guy pretty much pretty early on were they watching him or or was it still up in the air um was that any of that I'll, accurate with i just that i just kind of oh no yeah everything you threw out there was yeah i mean it was all you have a very accurate representation of what was going on at that point in time and uh and i i'm not at liberty to talk about exactly what what was happening at the time but i think that when you characterize it as kind of a big open question marks people knew something was up they didn't right. know what exactly was up it could have been one of you know three or four different options, but nobody knew for sure which one it was. Mm-hmm. That was a, that that is um, on point. That's where we were at that point in time, and um, and it's very difficult to be able to manage that kind of risk because it's an unknown risk. And we just talked about how the unknown is a deterrent for action. So what action do you take when there's so much that you don't know? 
And in many ways, I think that's why we saw that for an extended period of time, um, there was no decisive action taken. Um, when you look at the open source press stories about Jerry Lee, mm-hmm. regardless of whether or not he he was a mole or he wasn't a mole, and it's very important to, to recognize that he's not currently being tried under the Espionage Act. Um, but it's it's interesting when you look back at all the decisions that were made subsequently as they were going through the process of, you know, of vetting whether or not he was uh, potentially the mole or the leak, then you start to see how that lack of information fed into the decisions that were being made. FBI had him uh, in the United States, you know, in the room with them talking in 2014, I want to say it was, uh, and they just let him go back to Hong Kong, right? Because they couldn't, they didn't have enough, either they didn't have enough information at the time, or they weren't certain whether they had enough information at the time to take action. And in the absence of certainty, you know, it's a deterrent to action. So they, they let him go back. And then who knows, uh, who knows why he came back again in 2018. Um, you know, he's, he's obviously, he's a, uh, an operations certified former CIA case officer. The, the guy is not stupid. But he right. left. He left in 2013. Went back to Hong Kong. So, um, I mean, this is just a detail of the case. I don't really know. Um, maybe we could go back. Like, what is actually going on right now with him? I mean, he's being he's being accused of. What is he being accused of? And how is he? What's how is he being held? Yeah. So Jerry. So Jerry Lee is a former CIA officer, uh, a, a Chinese, um, um, ethnically Chinese, former CIA officer mm-hmm. who was arrested in January in New York. Um, on charges of disclosing classified information. And at the time of his arrest, um, FBI was able to produce, you know, journals with uh, undercover officer names, clandestine and uh, uh, locations, covert locations, exactly. Um, and they were able to tie, you know, tie it all back to sensitive information that he had, uh, he had gained during his time with CIA. Um, but what what has not been defined at this point in time, at least in in open source information, is that he was actually doing it at the behest of a foreign intelligence service, and that that that's a critical piece to the Espionage Act uh, sticking is is whether or not it was under the direction of of a foreign intelligence service. So here you have a, a former CIA officer who who clearly knows better than to be carrying around a journal with classified information. That sounds but a little. Never, that sounds a little. That that makes me think. Wait a minute. Maybe he's just like a decoy. <laughs> I mean, he, yeah, right? he's like in where was he? Virginia Beach or Hawaii or something like that. And he's got this little. I'm picturing this little journal with like you know, palm tree on it or something. You know, and he's just <laughs> scrib- scribbling down names of, dear diary. You know. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, it's it's the alternate, right? The alternate would be keeping all of that information in a digital format. Which many people think a digital format is is less secure oh, than a written accessible. format. Yeah, yeah, they could find it. Well, wasn't he accused of email, um, like or emailing some some known Chinese operatives or something? Yeah. So um, one of the one of the additional kind of kinks in the armor of the Jerry Lee story is that uh, is that when he left the agency, he became employed with a tobacco company in Japan, and uh, and during his time with that company um serving throughout asia you know uh i think he was part of their compliance division or whatever but during that time the company the japanese company itself actually submitted uh suspicious reports to the fbi of the united states saying 
this guy, Jerry Lee, former CIA officer, currently works for us, but he is having inappropriate contact with Chinese intelligence, right? We, we know he's in contact with Chinese intelligence officers. We know that he's, you know, meeting them in clandestine ways. Uh, and we think that this is all suspicious behavior. You know, we would like to terminate him, but we want to make sure that, you know, in so doing, we do it in conjunction with the FBI if there is an espionage case at play. Could you ever hear about Japanese intelligence? There's a reason, yeah. <laughs> why? why? <laughs> well, I mean, the so um, the Japanese intelligence service has a different set of priorities than we do. When Just like we talked about how, how espionage impacts American culture, espionage impacts every culture of the world a little bit differently. And Japan is a country that's openly racist, right? Like they, wow. they do not want anybody to live in Japan that isn't Japanese. They are a one country, one, one nation language, and they want to maintain their ethnic, uh, you know, uh, homogeneity, or if mm-hmm. that's the right, even the right word, homogeneousness. I don't know. Homogeneity um, but they, sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> they want to keep that purity going, right? So for them, it's kind of like if it doesn't impact the Japanese people, and it doesn't impact, you know, uh, J- Japanese e- economics or the Japanese. Uh, survival Japanese growth, then it's really not of interest to them. And instead, what they want to do is make sure that they use that as an opportunity to kind of uh, show their collaboration and show their partnership with other people. Um, Because again, you look at the history of Japan and Japan has been has been invaded and bombed. And, you know, they've been villainized and victimized throughout the ages. Right. Um, So it all plays into their culture. So for them, when you've got this, you know, former American CIA officer working for a Japanese country, meeting Chinese intelligence officers, it makes perfect sense that they would be like, you know what, we don't want to touch this because it's not impacting us. But we also don't want to be silent about it. Because if this guy gets caught, all these fingers are going to get pointed at us. So we're going to do just enough to make sure that the FBI knows that this guy is sure. a shady character. So that's an interesting relationship between the Japanese and the Chinese. I mean, are the Chinese as aggressive with the Japanese towards um, you know, intellectual properties and, and things like that as well? Because it, just, it would make sense that if the Japanese focus is more on industrial espionage, that they would pick up something like that or be in a position to, to – um, I don't know to find out about it. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. It's where you're going now is, you know, quite a bit outside of I would say my area of expertise, but um but when it comes to how Chinese and Japanese and and the Americans how how we all approach issues of uh, intellectual property, of property in general, property rights, um you're right. There's a rule of law that exists in Japan and in and in the United States that just doesn't seem to exist the same level in China. Um, and I think that's a big part of why you see continued partnerships with Japanese firms on new and cutting edge technology. And in China, you don't really see partnerships on new and cutting edge technology. You see partnerships on, you know, scaling up existing technology. So Jerry Lee, had he left the CIA before he went back to Hong Kong in 2013? Yeah, my understanding from from what I've been able to read open source is that, you know, Jerry Lee, um, in many ways, came to the top of of a short list of possible moles because of the suspicious uh, circumstances when he left the agency. You know, a disgruntled agency officer that left the agency and moved immediately to Hong Kong uh, with his entire family. So, I mean, that's that's pretty aggressive. Uh, I wasn't disgruntled, but when I left the agency, you know, we didn't go to a different country. We just we went to Florida, which feels like a different country sometimes, but. Sure. Uh, 
but you know mm-hmm. we're nowhere near as suspicious how do you think he was was approached this is the part that's so fascinating right because let's just Let's sure. just theorize that the Chinese successfully recruited and converted Jerry Lee or any uh, any former American uh, CIA officer. Let's say that they successfully recruited them into being a spy for China. So we had spoke earlier on this interview about that idea of how you use deliberate dialogue and social capital to mutate someone's loyalty somehow some way the Chinese intelligence service was able to put either somebody or a team of people um, in front of a former CIA officer, uh, an experienced field officer, and basically outmaster, outmaneuver that person to get them to sway their loyalty. Now, what's fascinating here is that, uh, you know, it's, it's easy to look at loyalty as a, as a black and white thing, right? You're either loyal to your country or you're loyal to my country. But that's not really how loyalty works, because loyalty has a a number of different gradations in between. I'm an American, and I am loyal to my country, but I'm also loyal to my family. I'm loyal to my wife. I'm loyal to my friends, right? So um, for whatever reason, Jerry Jerry Lee or any other, you know, potentially converted uh, asset or officer is going to be swayed on this topic of loyalty. But, But is it because that person is more loyal to the hostile country? Are they more loyal to China? Or have the Chinese convinced them to be loyal to themselves and put themselves above all other things and then just make a practical decision about what to do with this information that they have, right? So is it a a question of whether Jerry Lee is loyal to the United States? Is it a question of whether Jerry Lee is loyal to the Chinese? Or is it a question of whether Jerry Lee is simply loyal to Jerry above all other things? Yeah, plus he'd been through the farm. I mean, they knew that he'd been through that sort of training, you know? They knew that he'd been been taught by... The master as well, you know, which and think about that. Think about what that says about the Chinese intelligence service, that not only are they able to, you know, steal American secrets, but they're able to they're able to convert American specialists, American intelligence officers into sources of information for themselves like that is that's a Jedi converting somebody from the light side to the dark side. Yeah. Right. And that's some intense stuff. That's the stuff they make movies about. Let me jump back a little bit. I mean, would you definitely believe that I mean, we talk, we didn't really talk about it, but I mean, inherent in this conversation is like the, the importance of, you know, human, human intelligence. Is it possible to kind of sway somebody with deliberate dialogue and social capital without seeing them in person? Wow. You know, so um, from a professional perspective, I have to say yes. Right. We've, right. we've seen it. I've done it. We've seen how people can go without a personal touch point and, and be captivated and be um, directed without social capital and without, um, without, uh, I'm sorry, with social capital and direct dialogue only without any in-person interaction. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I would say that we've, you know, when you, with the existence of things like Facebook and Instagram, cyberbullying and Skype. uh, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, Right. Um, There's all sorts of technology has made it amazingly uh, has made the world a, a remarkably small place where you can have a great deal of influence on people that you have never met. Uh, and if you use the tools that I've talked about, if you use some of the tools that are out there, uh, f- whether you use them for good or for ill, with technology, technology is just enabling us to use those tools to higher effectiveness and in a shorter period of time. Which is why I want to talk to you about your long-distance carrier. Are you still with AT&T right now? <laughs> <laughs> 
anyway, we could, we, I, I could, I could, you know, I could talk to you more. I don't want to take up any more of your time, but I think this is a great place to kind of wrap things up a little bit. I've really enjoyed talking with you. You, you know, an awful lot, and uh, definitely want to work on my deliberate dialogue a little bit more before we talk again. <laughs> but that's just me, uh, <laughs> me, me personally. I mean, I really appreciate you spending your time and, and um, talking about this stuff, and I hope we can we can chat again. What you're working on here is important stuff, and uh, and I know that there are. A lot of people out there who are interested in espionage and a lot of people out there who are fascinated with the world of Intel and Intel collection Um, and anything that we can do, especially at this point in time in our history, to get that information out there, I think is benefiting, benefiting our entire population, right? It's, it's without boundaries. It's without borders. It's without national, national heritage. Um, Mm -hmm. It's without any specific loyalty, right? There's so much room for knowledge and information to be shared right now. Uh, that I am of the opinion that much of it needs to be shared. The, the secrets that we need to keep are so few and so far between that we really need to respect those secrets for what they are. And with the rest, we need to be willing to let go. And that was my conversation with Andrew Bustamante, an ex-CIA case officer. He's an author, speaker, advisor. He's written a book called Everyday Espionage. It's available on Amazon. You can find him at his website, andrewbustamante.org. End of transmission.